and loudly, okay? But uh, I'm going to skip reading the passage because we're going to go through most of it uh, as we go today, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us. We pray now that we would be able to focus on your word and hear what you would have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Are we set? Do I need to move or step back or anything? Yes, anyway. How about that? Y'all remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? The, uh, I remember hearing my Uncle Joe tell the story when I was a kid at summer camp. And Uncle Joe was the camp chaplain. And when he told the Bible story, you were right there in the thick of the action. And if you remember, it was uh, Daniel was trapped in the evil empire of Babylon. And he remained loyal to the Lord God Almighty. And he was a great prophet. And he prayed to the Lord three times a day. And he never forgot God's promises. He was one of God's men, brave and full of courage. And he refused to bow to the king's idols. And Daniel worshipped God alone. But the king's other advisors were jealous. And they hated Daniel. And so they plotted and schemed and conspired in the uh, 6th century B.C. equivalent of the smoke-filled back room in order to have Daniel done away with. And they tricked the king into passing a law that said everyone had to pray to the king himself or be thrown into the lion's den. And then they went and got Daniel who had continued to pray to the Lord. And they took him to the king. And the king, realizing that he'd been had, was forced to obey his own law and had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. But when he did this, he said to Daniel, his last words to Daniel, Daniel 6, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. That would be a good prayer for when you're leaving today to go home. Well, waiting for the outcome is nerve-wracking. They threw Daniel into the lion's den and nobody knew would Daniel be ripped to shreds by the lion <coughs> or would someone, somehow, come to his rescue. Well, the king couldn't take the, the uh, suspense any longer. So early in the morning, he went to the lion's den, Daniel 6. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? <coughs> Excuse me. You almost hear the silence. The king's waiting. He's straining to hear an answer. Just about when he's ready to give up, you hear the strong, calm voice of Daniel. Daniel 6, 21. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And then the king rejoiced that Daniel was saved. <coughs> mm, sorry. 
And he wrote to all the people, all the nations, all the men of every language. Then the king Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. I share that story with you because in the Bible, Daniel's not the only one that gets thrown into the lion's den. We're in John 7, the last six months of Jesus' life. And for that time period, Jesus is in the lion's den. In a lion's den of evil men intent on taking his life. But as we see here, Jesus will ward off their accusations, point out their hostile attitudes, and close their objecting mouths. So coming to the text today, you want to turn there uh, in your Bibles. It's also in the uh, outline. Uh, starting at verse 1 of John 7, we see that Jesus faces the lions, his brothers. The lions, his brothers. This first set of lions are Jesus' brothers. We know from Matthew 13 and Mark 6 that they were named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And they tell Jesus here in verses 2 through 4, Now the Jews' Feast of Booths, which is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now if you remember from the start of John 6, many of Jesus' followers had deserted him because of the difficulty of his teaching on being the bread of life. And so now his brothers step in thinking they're going to fix this situation. And they're making an appeal to the spectacular. And in effect, they're saying, Jesus, go do some more miracles. Do them publicly. Let everyone see them. Go to Jerusalem. It's time for the Feast of Booths, which is the feast that draws the biggest crowd. Tens of thousands of people. Go show yourself to the world. However, we saw in verse 1, it said after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So apparently the impact of Jesus' ministry has now brought about the situation where there were people in Jerusalem who were waiting to kill him. The religious leadership have already made up their minds about Jesus and they want him out of the picture. And Jesus knows this. He knows if he goes to the feast and makes a big spectacular entrance, he's placing his life in danger. But his brothers don't care about that. We know from verse 5 where it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. They're not motivated by faith. And again, essentially, what they're saying to Jesus is, So what? Jerusalem is against you. Big deal. You can do all kinds of neat stuff. Shouldn't be a problem. Go anyway. Jesus, if you want to be the big shot religious performer, you've got to go to Jerusalem. What are you afraid of? You need to do things the way we think you should do things. 
How about it, Jesus? Go to Jerusalem. We dare you. Now, they didn't actually say, we dare you. But I think we might. And I think it's implied when they say, leave here and go. Show yourself to the world. They're challenging him. Now, one of the things I learned when I was in the army, if you're sent on a special mission, and in particular a rescue mission, timing is everything. Timing is everything. And that's how Jesus answers his brothers here. In verse 6, he tells them, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And that tells us two things. First, there's a right time. And second, the timing is dependent on God. And sometimes we want to do things according to our own schedule. We don't want to wait on the Lord in his timing. You know, sometimes God acts kind of slow. And we want to get things done and get things done now. I mean, what's the problem, God? Why shouldn't we go ahead and get it over with? We have to learn to act like Jesus in this issue of waiting on God's timing. He doesn't get upset over the childish taunting of his brothers. But he lets them know that there's a time for everything under heaven. And if they're going to follow God, then they need to not only follow what he says, but just as importantly, they and us need to follow when he says. So then he goes on to let his brothers know that they're not following God in this manner. Because he says, your time is always here. You don't care about the when. You don't care about God's timing. You're not dependent upon God. You're doing whatever you want to, whenever you want to, and you're not seeking God's timing. They're not submitting their lives to God, and so they're not accomplishing anything of lasting value. Why? It sounds pretty harsh. And Jesus says it's because they're part of the world. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. They're not standing in opposition to the world. They're not following God's will. They didn't listen to God's word. They didn't recognize it when it came. They can't perceive it when it's standing right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. They've divorced themselves from God's timing. So any time will do. And all appointments that ignore God's timing are in the eternal scheme of things insignificant. Jesus goes on to say, starting at verse 8, You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. See, they wanted a public display by a public figure. He went as a prophet to testify to the truth, to say the things that God wanted said. That's going to become clear down in verses 16 and 17. But what's clear here is their motive is publicity. And Jesus' motive is ministry. So he's dependent on God and waiting on God's timing. And when God says go, he goes. But when he gets there, he has to face another group of lions. In this case, it's the lions, the Jews, starting verse 11. Because the Jews... The religious establishment, the religious leadership, not talking about all the people. They're in a conspiracy against Jesus. They had come to the feast to take action against him. At a minimum, to question him about what he's doing. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? 
And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So we have a scene where people are curious. Some are muttering and complaining. Others want to question. Some are conspiring against him. But all expect to be able to challenge him in some way at the feast. But that's not what the feast is for. The purpose of the feast is to gather together to worship, praise, and thank God. And we're left with the distinct impression that here the keepers of the law are in fact acting in disobedience to the law. So then Jesus shows up privately and begins teaching. And they find out about it. And they're really not happy with that, starting at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And what they meant was he hadn't studied at the temple. He hadn't studied under a rabbi. He hadn't learned the scriptures from them. And so they're upset. What are his credentials? How does he know so much? Where does he get the authority to teach like this? And so they had a lot of questions, very few answers, and a certain amount of resentment. Picking up at verse 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And so Jesus challenges them right back to listen to what he's actually saying. And he tells the professional followers of God that if they're really following God, if they're really trying to do God's will, then they'll know if his teaching is from God or if he's acting on his own authority. Which implies that if they think his teaching is not from God and they think he's speaking on his own authority, then they aren't really trying to do God's will. And then to dig a little deeper, he points out that they're acting in a totally self-centered manner. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. And Jesus is challenging them by declaring his motives and questioning theirs. They're seeking glory for themselves instead of working for God's glory. They're the ones speaking on their own authority and teaching their own message instead of God's message. But they didn't want anyone else, especially Jesus, to teach anything other than their message. I mean, they had to remember what the crowds have already said about Jesus, Matthew 7. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so Jesus has challenged them with real authority because his teaching comes from God. He said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And then he challenges this group of lines, these scribes and Pharisees, in verse 19, by telling them, has, Moses, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? I mean, can you hear him saying that? You have the law, but you don't obey it. Furthermore, you want to kill me. Square that with the commandments. It leads us back to their uh, contention in verse 15 when they said, how does this man have learning? He's never studied. And the key point in this part of the text is that Jesus' teaching is God's teaching. What Jesus taught was divine wisdom from God in which he, God, sent him, Jesus, to tell you, the Jews in the crowd. As we saw earlier in John 5, not only is Jesus one with the Father in works, 
and one with the Father in judgment, but he's one with the Father in his teaching. And so in one sense, he's letting them know that they're right. His teaching is not from men, it's not from the rabbis, it's not from the scribes, it's not from the Pharisees, it's from God. His teaching has not come from other readers of the word, but from the author of the word. And so it should be for us as well. We need to be studying his teaching on our own. And through his Holy Spirit, Christ will teach us. But you say, we do learn from another reader of the word. We learn from you. That's true. But you cannot know if what I say is biblical unless you're reading and studying the Bible for yourself. Listening to a sermon on Sunday isn't an adequate substitute for a personal regular Bible study. And Jesus draws that point out, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. Jesus is telling them and us that doing God's will is a deliberate choice. It doesn't just happen. You must will to do his will. But you can't choose to do God's will if you don't know what it is or where to find it. So you have to look for it. And the only place you can look for it is in God's word. God communicates with us through his word. And therefore we must know his word in order to know his will. Then you can be a little bit more sure of what his will is and a little bit more sure that you're being led by the Holy Spirit in choosing and willing to do his will. And that's what Jesus is telling the people here in John 7. He's challenging them. Check it out for yourself. He's saying, you do the investigating of who I am, what I've done, what I've said, and you decide. It's no different today. You have to make up your own mind about whether Jesus' teaching is in accord with the revealed word of God in Scripture. And then you'll know. And you'll know, as it says in John 14, 6, that Christ is the truth. And as it says in John 17, that God's word is the truth. But he's not out of the lion's den yet. He's got one more group of lions to face. Verse 20, the lions, the crowd. Well, Jesus, the crowd responds to what Jesus has said about the Jews not keeping the law and about wanting to kill him with a cry of their own. It's in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? You can almost hear him challenging Jesus' contention here that he's living under the constant threat of violence. I mean, they're saying, come on, Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, have you lost it? You're crazy, you're nuts, you're demon-possessed. Nobody's trying to kill you. We're not going to do anything like that. And yet, little do they know, a short six months later, they're going to do exactly that and nail Jesus to a cross. And so, But Jesus ignores their taunts and challenges their understanding. He reminds them of how upset they were when he healed the lame man on the Sabbath, the last time he was in Jerusalem. <coughs> Verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? And again, Jesus is telling them, I did one miracle and you marvel. But then you're upset because I did that miracle on the Sabbath. 
And you're more upset about healing on the Sabbath than you are grateful for the healing in the first place. There's a serious misunderstanding of how God works. They've put their own rules and rituals over the intent of the law. And Jesus is telling them that he healed the whole man because the person is more important than the ritual. And if they really understood the intent of the law, they would know that healing the lame man was not only permitted on the Sabbath, but was required. Law was meant for the good of the people under the law. Good deeds, deeds of necessity, piety, and mercy, as the Westminster Confession would phrase it, they are not merely allowed, but they ought to be done on the Sabbath. So he tells them pretty bluntly in the last verse here, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. He wants them to start stop judging by outward appearances. He wants them to stop looking just at the surface. Because snap judgments in spiritual matters tend to be legalistic, and that can be dangerous and misleading. The problem, of course, is they're judging people by their standards, not by God's standards. And so Jesus wants them to make a right judgment. It's clear there's lots to learn from John 7. Our service is not to be motivated by publicity. Our work is for God's glory, and we need to depend on God and wait on his timing choose to do his will and judge rightly by the heart. Truth be told, we regularly screw that stuff up. It's easy to lay it out here and say this is all the stuff Jesus is teaching us about. But we regularly screw that stuff up. Mark Driscoll, who's the uh, pastor of a church in Seattle, writes about an incident uh, that happened to a young woman in his church who's an artist says, there's a goth girl in my church. You know, white face, black clothes, red lipstick, lots of jewelry. And she went to hear an evangelist speak at a friend's youth group. And this guy, in the middle of his talk, looked at her and said, I can see a spirit of depression in you. I can see a spirit of suicide and despair. God can deliver you. She went up to him afterwards and said, why would you say that? He said, well, just look at you. She was like, Really? That's all it takes to interpret my whole existence. Just 30 seconds in light of Almighty God, just because I'm wearing black. It turns out this young woman is not only a Christian, but lives in a women's ministry house, leads a small group, is uh, going through a foundational theology class, and is preparing to go to Bible college so someday she can become a youth pastor. Say, right, she's actually a wonderful woman of God, very mature in her faith. Regarding her appearance, she explained to me it's just an artistic expression. But still, a lot of us look at her and think, wow, I know where that kid's at. And the kids are saying back to you, maybe you don't. And as our culture continues to fragment and become increasingly pluralistic, entertaining the notion that we're the authority figures, we've been educated, we can interpret and decode you, we can give you what you need, comes across this great arrogance. Kids see it as a lack of affection because we're not living in their world. We're not understanding the soil that they're growing in. And we misinterpret and misunderstand much of what they're trying to express. 
And there are Christians who insist the world sees the gospel as irrelevant. It doesn't relate to real life. It's not an unfamiliar argument, but there's perhaps something we haven't heard. That the gospel is irrelevant to many people today, and particularly many teens, because we aren't giving them the gospel at all. Maybe before we ask how do we engage the culture with the gospel, we should ask what is the gospel? Because what is truly the gospel, historical gospel, not the me and Jesus uh, individual personal uh, gospel, but the totality of it, the whole story of what God has uh, done and, and is doing and will do. Because if it's true, if the gospel spans from perfection in Genesis 1 and 2 to perfection in Revelation 21 and 22, and it involves sin and chaos and families and nations and people and life and death and sex and passion and food and the whole of human existence, and our lives are part of that great story that God is telling, then to say the gospel isn't relevant is just plain foolishness. And that's exactly why when we try to sell Jesus as just a personal savior just for you to a world that's becoming uh, wrapped around a, a holistic and community-based uh, approach to life. We hear people say, I don't need just a personal savior. And the gospel becomes irrelevant because God is no longer big enough. God isn't Lord over everything anymore. He's not involved in all that we are anymore. And young people are screaming at, at us today that I want a God who's bigger than me. We don't talk about the whole of life, you know, so we fragmented our cultures. Supermarket does food, politicians do politics, Hollywood does entertainment, the church does the soul. We just get this disembodied little chunk. Historic Christianity. The entirety of God's story has to take the lead in our minds and our hearts. If it does, we will see some incredible things happen. It's time to say the gospel is everything. The whole story of God for the whole people of God. Simply put, it's time to tell the truth. Now, I have a great story here about William Wilberforce, but I think I'm going to save it for next week. He says, make a right judgment. That's how he ends. And we make a right judgment, we start by getting the gospel right. That's how we start. Let's pray. And then I'm just going to dismiss you and we will drive home safely. And very slowly. So, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being here and hearing your word. Now we ask you to deliver us safely to our homes and our families. That however long it takes, however slow we need to drive, get us home in one piece. Father, and we pray we would not forget the lessons here of facing opposition.